Алекса, стоп. Это подкаст about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowles. That is our jingle and you are listening to Alexa Stop. I am Jim Bowes. I'm sat in the grey velvet room opposite a man they like to call... Robert Belgrave. I'm not sure why we do this two-phase intro every time where we say our own names, but I'm quite enjoying it and the room is indeed a plush and grey velvet. Here we are recording in Strong Room Shoreditch yet again, back for episode five. Indeed we are. And I can say one thing about you, Rob, today. I can say that you have eaten ham. Jim and I shared a delicious lunch with Lawrence Weber of Kamarama and Essentia fame. Uh, he chose the restaurant, but we ate all the ham, and very nice it was too. I did uh, I enjoy that. Uh, particularly the chorizo lollipop was particularly nice. Oh, delightful. So, um, although we could talk about ham, cheese, and chorizo lollipops for 45 minutes at least, we may as well talk about something else, perhaps something to do with how technology is changing our lives. That would be on theme, wouldn't it? And this month we've decided we're going to talk all about AI. AI and, I guess, by proxy machine learning, which is kind of the same thing, is, I would say, the piece of technology which has already changed our lives the most, but will definitely have the biggest impact on our lives into the future Uh, I think that it's transforming the world around us in many ways, and I'm interested to unpack some of that with you today. And artificial insemination and machine learning, Rob, how are they going to affect us? Is that what I said? No, okay. uh, it's just that we haven't uh, we haven't said what AI stands for yet, and so I thought I'd go with the official Google definition. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> and if you look up what AI stands for, it's artificial insemination. Is it really? But well, that's not what we mean. Is I, it? I thought I'd had a Freudian slip there, and we are going to be talking about sex a little bit during some of our segments today. So, what is AI? Well, people have lots of different definitions of AI, but for me, I just sort of think of it as computers making decisions using more than just what people call a decision tree. If you ever look into the debate around AI, you'll see people say things like, it's not AI, it's just a Boolean tree. And what they really mean is a simple yes, no question that you can ask a machine with a pre-programmed list of answers. So AI is a bit more than that. It's sort of evaluating lots of different data sets at the same time to come up with an answer, which you could argue is a bit more intelligent than just a simple decision tree. Yeah, when many of the moving, the data sets that it's calculating could be moving and changing over time, Right, for and, example. And the more data you have, the more sophisticated the process becomes. And, and with this glut of data that's available to us today and, and to the people designing these systems, some really fascinating stuff is, is coming through. So, And we've got some great guests to talk on this topic coming up. Who's on the show? We do. We've got Pete Trainer, who heads up the AI think tank for Beamer, sits on the Beamer Central Council with me. And, and to be fair, my uh, artificial insemination gag was stolen from his presentation. Oh, really? Don't tell him. Oh, there we go. Well, yeah. glad he's not in the studio with us yet. So Pete is an amazing guy. I met him first speaking at the Silicon Beach Conference down in Bournemouth. My first impression of Pete was very interesting because he had just told the room that he'd been hacking the Wi-Fi at this conference for the last two days. He was speaking on the second day and had been recording everyone's browsing data to assess their behaviours. And the reaction in the room was kind of interesting, as you can imagine. A sort of slightly bemused, slightly terrified chortle murmured throughout. But Pete... Pete has done all kinds of incredible work. He's written a great book, which he'll talk to us a bit about today. He's also created a thing called Sue, which is a sort of chatbot system to help prevent male suicide, which is something a very personal cause to him and a very powerful one. And Pete's bringing with him someone called Zillia, who he recently spoke with at an AI conference, and he tells me is an amazing woman who also works in the same field. And she's got a startup that's creating a sort of suite of apps to help with mental health issues and, and kind of help, I guess, with therapy. She's a, a trained therapist, so uh, a psychologist rather. 
Cool. It's great guests. Can't wait to bring them into the studio. But before then, it's probably time that we did something based on the fact that it's the news. It's the news. Oh, yes, it's the news. News, news again. Lots of news. And, All the news. And we've got lots to get in this month because there's been loads of great stuff going on in the news. So let's start with Google. Uh, always good to start with Google in a tech podcast. And a fascinating article about how you can do really interesting stuff with Google data. Yeah, I mean, this one's from over the weekend, and it's it's a bit of a chunky read, right? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, there must be a couple of thousand words at least. That's five pages of A4, right? But But fascinating nonetheless. I suppose the interesting thing that came from this was it was talking about how you could use Google data to see where people are not telling the truth, essentially. when So when surveyed, people sometimes say things that aren't quite true. Yeah, so there's this, this notion that there's this thing called social desirability bias, and it's this concept that if a human asks another human a question, it's very difficult for the respondent in that exchange to be open and honest. And if you correlate the data that you get from a census or, or a survey where people are asked by a human with the same question being asked in a, in a sort of anonymous way by a computer or in a way that the recipient perceives to be you know, talking to, to the machine. Or indeed, if you don't ask the question at all and you just read their behavioural data... For in this case, using Google search data, the results are remarkably different. I think it's an absolutely fascinating concept and, and the possibilities that are being opened up by us asking questions of data rather than of people will be world-changing, frankly. So when people said in the census that their religion was Jedi, do you think that was just people uh, saying it for fun? I think it probably was, unfortunately, wasn't it? There's a study um, of University of Maryland graduates, um, and fewer than 2% of them reported that they graduated with lower than a 2.5 grade point average. But in reality, 11% did. And 44% of them said they donated to the university in the last year, but actually only 28% of them had. Yeah, and yeah, we could talk about this article for the whole episode, frankly. So do go and dig it out if you're interested. It's on the Guardian website, and it's... Uh, Everybody Lies, How Google Reveals the Darkest Secrets, which I think is fascinating. But one of those dark secrets was that actually when it comes to male libido, women aren't so bothered about the size and actually are far more interested in making sure that the uh, the end is reached by all parties. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's there's lots of stuff in there that surprised me, at least. Great read, good article. So moving on with the news, I was looking at this interesting news story from New Zealand about Rachel, who is an AI human. Yeah, this this is pretty creepy. So made by a company called Soul Machine. They've got a couple of them, don't they? These sort of weird cyborgs? No, I guess they're purely computer generated, aren't they? I mean, basically, imagine you could have a video conference call with something that looks and sounds a lot like a human, but is actually an avatar being generated by a computer system backed by machine learning and AI. But with emotions. Yes. And this company belongs to the guy that worked on Avatar. Yeah. It's called Mark Sagar. And just spine chilling right the baby one in particular that gets sad when you move away from your camera and then laughs and smiles and so forth recognizes an apple yeah and and speaks in in a childish way is is kind of yeah i don't know made me feel a bit uneasy honestly watching it but i suppose the idea with this is that these avatars will become people that work in situations so they're saying that this could be a salesperson rachel could be a salesperson so you could work, walk into a phone shop i guess they'd be at the front of the phone shop and they'd have a conversation with you about what phone you want it doesn't seem that far away 
we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? And the reaction initially was, wow, that would be a really negative thing. But as someone that had a bit of a fractious exchange with a member of TFL staff today, I think actually in many cases we might get better customer service as a result. So maybe the best is yet to come when it comes to shop assistants and cyborgs. And the other, so the other thing that was really interesting in this article was really that the third largest tech company in China, Baidu, are focusing all of their effort on AI and autonomous vehicles. Yeah, I mean, not too much to say on this, I guess, other than it's a signal, isn't it, that a tech company of that scale and with basically limitless resources is doubling down on AI and and sort of saying to the world, this really is the future as far as we see it. And the autonomous vehicle thing is fascinating. Something I found out recently is in Singapore, they already have autonomous Uber called Robocar. And it's a kind of pilot scheme. But if you go to Singapore, I'm told you can get this app out and you can book a car and it will turn up no driver, no steering wheel. And so it's much closer than I think many people realise that kind of technology. And of course, one of the people that's working really closely with Uber is Volvo. Yes. And we talk about Tesla all the time. But actually, Volvo have got a few things to say on this autonomous vehicle stuff too. Yeah, so I kind of feel sorry for Volvo. Tesla get all the PR lines on this. But Volvo have been neck and neck with Tesla really in many ways for the last five or six years and really leading the field. Volvo, about a year ago, was the only other car available on the UK market that had sort of autonomous cruise control where you could sit behind the wheel, press a button and it would pretty much drive itself. You know, you're meant to kind of keep your hands on the wheel, but it it does the job. But I really like Volvo, quite a progressive company. And they've also come out this week and said that they are going to stop making petrol engines in 2019. Yeah, incredible. Which is really soon and quite a brave thing to do because only 1% globally of cars that are sold this year, they think will be electric. So that's a massive shift in three years. They're keeping up the hybrids. Yes, I suppose so they'll have the hybrids. The and hybrids the is kind of cheating a little bit, I suppose. Oh, no, it's but. not cheating. I mean, it's not completely cutting off your market sure. in one go. But it's, a, it's still a bold t- statement of intent, I think. Yeah, and, and look, it's going to be great for everybody, right? Better for the planet. Uh, they're actually fantastic to drive as well, for those of you that haven't had the chance to drive an electric car yet. So, yeah, good job, Volvo. Um, and, and then finally... In the news. This is a wonderful story. You brought this one in, Rob. Tell us about this one. So this is the Dragonfly. Dragonfly. Terrible name. Clearly a techie that's branded that one. So the BBC, uh, from BBC Click, ran a story on the Dragonfly cybernetic flight system. And this is proper Black Mirror dystopian stuff. So um, some scientists have worked out that they can turn real organic dragonflies into mini drones, essentially, by fitting them with a solar-powered backpack that can control their steering neurons using light pulses. And I'm having to pause and think about that as I say it because it's just too wacky and out there to be reality. But they have a demo on the BBC article of this thing taking flight. Uh, You know, the scientist proudly says they can fly at speeds of up to 30 miles an hour with accelerations of nine Gs and uh, hope to use them to go where military craft can't go and to help with the pollination of crops. And, And frankly... God knows what they're going to do with them. It sort of felt a bit like they were doing it because they could, not perhaps because they should. But fair play, they've got these things working and it's, it's quite something to behold. But the natural extension of that is like a chip that you can put on your back and you can control a human and they'll go where you want. We'll have to ask our guests about that, I think, because as much as there be some magic to be had from that, I dread to think what the consequences could be. Indeed. Well, that's the news. That is the news. And maybe it's time to speak a little bit about the sort of person that might be quite keen to have a chip fitted. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's that time where we talk about stories from Rob CTO. 
And I've got a great story this month. Actually, I've got an interlude story. So this is not from my CTO, but comes from a dear friend of mine who works in technology, who has recently formally moved in with his new partner. But you know when you're in that kind of middle ground with a partner where they've probably got a toothbrush at your house, but they've still got their own flat and, you know, maybe they have a key, but their post still gets delivered somewhere else. Well, this friend of mine was recently in the car on the way back to his house with his girlfriend, who hadn't moved in at the time. She got her phone out and opened the sat-nav and put in his address, and it asked her, are you driving home? It knew. It knew. So It knew uh, before they did. In 2017, you know when your girlfriend's moved in, when her phone decides that your address is in fact her home address. So there we go. I thought that was a good interlude. But um, CTO stories also involving driving. So... My CTO and one of our team, uh, one of his good friends, were driving down to a wedding in deepest, darkest Wales. And for those of you that have driven to Wales, you'll know that it's off the beaten track when you really get into the valleys and the roads aren't particularly well signed and are pretty narrow at times. And so these guys decided that losing internet coverage at any point on this journey was simply not an option. In the brain of a CTO, such things are just beyond reality, frankly, to be without the internet to allow them to steer throughout their journey. So they bought a patch antenna and stuck it to the glass in their car. So it had the best possible reception at all times. They then had two mobile phones with different networks and using a combination of both of these phones and this antenna, managed to low balance their sat-nav service throughout their journey to allow them to optimise their route and arrive much, much earlier than all of their fellow guests, I suppose, who got hopelessly lost and upon arrival asked them, how the hell did you find the place? And you can imagine how smug they look. So there we go, everybody. If you've ever got an arduous journey then you need some route planning, take a CTO with you and you're sure to get there on time. I've got to be honest, it is just ridiculous. Because the time and the effort that that must have taken and convincing people to like come along with you on on that sort of conceptual journey of this is what we're going to do. <laughs> That's what I find unbelievable. Well, uh, to them, it made perfect sense. And uh, I think, again, it's one of those, well, why did you do it? Because I can. And so it's time for something from the hype curve. And this month, we're revisiting what we brought up in episode four, which was the episode all about health tech. And you may remember Jim pointing out that he wasn't sure whether he was wheat intolerant or not, but it was certainly a good excuse after he'd had 10 pints of beer. So Jim has been off and he's ordered a testing kit. What's it called, Jim? The gluten check. Gluten check, yeah. Gluten check, which he is currently unsheathing before me. So I've, I've got an alcohol wipe that I'm wiping my finger with. Let's just say, uh, yeah, that's step two is, is actually that. So I've not really done step one. Step so, one is the bit that draws blood. Yeah. Uh, so I need that bit. Um, so, so, you know... As this is an audio format, I'm going to have to talk you through what's going on in front of me. So Jim right now is about to prick what looks like the end of his finger with a, a an orange device. Um, and, you know, doing this live on air seemed like a really great idea. And, and it will do right up until the point where blood is, is flowing throughout the studio. But, um, yeah, we're going to harness the power of technology and the quantified self. And Jim is going to, from the comfort of his studio chair, check whether he is indeed gluten intolerant. Any thoughts on that, Jim? It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> the fact that I'm going to make something that's going to make me bleed go into my finger whilst also having some recording going on. Press the automatic lancing device <laughs> with the round opening firmly against the clean fingertip and activate it by pushing the button. The puncture is almost painless. <laughs> He's lancing himself. Here it goes. Oh, that didn't look painless to me. <laughs> Yep, there's okay. blood. We've got blood, listener. 
<laughs> and, and now the blood is being collected in the tube. The lancing okay. has done its job. Um, so now, step three. S- step f- four this is, uh, open the plastic container and carefully remove the glass capillary tube. Can I assist with removing the glass capillary tube? No, he's uh, got it. He's okay. got it. So I'm now watching my co-host and friend squeeze blood out of his finger into a small tube. This is great radio, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Could this be one of those you had to be here kind of moments? I think it might be. I think it might be. I think the results will be more interesting than the test itself. I'm struggling to get enough blood out of here. Do you think I need to lance myself again? I hope never relance. I mean, surely there's some sort of law against relancing. I've got the feeling, Rob, that you might need to edit some of this. I think there might be some editing happening. Uh, would you describe yourself as someone with a heavy flow, Jim? <laughs> Not particularly. No? No? Do you think your lancing was ineffective? No, I've managed to get some blood out of myself. It's like getting blood from a stone. Hey, there it is. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing Much I've like... ever done. <laughs> and so, um, Jim, what what are you hoping to discover other than the uh, whether your beer excuse will stand up next time you're in the pub well, from your to be honest, check? In an ideal world, I'll discover that I'm not wheat intolerant because if I'm wheat intolerant, then I probably need to modify my diet and I need to give consideration to a whole bunch of things I'd rather not give consideration to. So for me, it wouldn't be cool to be actually wheat intolerant. <laughs> uh so listener, we're back we're back with you and I'm I'm now watching Jim desperately trying to get the blood that is gushing from his finger into the tiny glass tube while reading the instructions. It's not going particularly well. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there. I'm gonna say that's enough. We're gonna blood. go there. Okay. So we'll get the little we'll get the then we then mix it in this little pot. Okay, would you like me to read the next step to you? So it goes in here, I believe. Okay, insert the filled glass capillary into the solution bottle and screw the cap. Yeah. Mix the content that's badly translated of the solution bottle by turning it gently upside down several times until the blood from the glass capillary tube is mixed with the solution. I'm just going to put a plaster on. I think you should. Because uh, now my finger is bleeding. When I wanted it to bleed, <laughs> it I was wasn't. struggling to and get now, blood out of it. And now there's blood coming out. I mean, you know, we practice health and safety in the Alexa Stop studio. Now, listener, if you're hearing this, the entire audio section of the test did not go particularly well. <laughs> so, so we'll be segueing straight to the results. Anything to add, Jim? <laughs> No, I, I'll be pleased when I've got the results. Yes, I'm sure you will. <laughs> okay, and uh, in 10 minutes' time, we will know the answer to the question you've all wondered. Is my co-host Jim wheat intolerant? Wow, should we move on? <laughs> I think we should. The, the big question on my lips, Rob. I've, I've now like like injured myself. I'm not sure if I can actually concentrate to get through the rest of this programme, but we've got guests coming in soon, so I need to clean myself up of blood and be ready to interview them. And uh, that's the first time you've said that in the studio, but hopefully not the last. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I think the only thing that we've got left to do, apart from these results, is talk about some tech that you'd like to bring back. Uh, uh, and, uh, is, well, what, what is there out there that you would like to, to, to bring back? Well, retro tech, always a good segment. I particularly enjoyed the rubber band exercise machines we covered last month. For me, this month, I'm going to go with a retro gaming vibe. So uh, as someone that has always found gaming a way to kind of relax and have a kind of -of out-of-body, almost meditative experience, for me, I was thrilled to see that Nintendo, building on the success of the NES Classic, which was a sort of revamped version of the Nintendo Entertainment System of yesteryear, are launching the SNES Classic, available today for $69.99 from stores near you, complete with all of the old games, original controllers in a sort of updated format. So Mario Kart, Mario Kart, GoldenEye, Mario World. GoldenEye was a slightly later console called the N64. 
No, so, I think there was a SNES version. Was there a there? SNES Goldeneye? I think so. Wasn't there not? Oh, wow. Am I wrong? Is that N64? You I might be right. As an avid gamer. You're, you're probably more of a gamer than I am. But, I'm probably wrong. Was there another James Bond game for SNES? Yes, I think there was. I have no Maybe. idea what it was called, but... I'll let you have it. We'll have to look into that. What about you, Jim? I what? think you're probably right on N64. I was thinking, actually, so you were talking about the re- this retro gaming thing. I thought, well, what's the retro game that I remember that I'd bring back? And there's a game called Skip It, which was a band that you put around your ankle and you just spun around and you counted how many times you thought you could skip over it without breaking stride. And the technology involved in that was the thing that counted the skips. Right. So what was that? Like uh, every time the rope went round once, it, it, incremented, it incremented by one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hot sauce. Yeah, yeah. Very deep tech. Uh, I probably had my Casio watch on while I was playing that with my cousins. And uh, I'd like to think maybe some high-waisted jeans. Uh, probably. Some, Who knows? And a Joe sort of lo- t-shirt. Some sort of luminous jumper, yeah. maybe. Okay. Pro- possibly. Sounds good, yeah. Um, based on where we've gone down to in this conversation, it's probably time uh, we got close to inviting our guests in. But before we do that, shall we see whether or not I am wheat intolerant? It is a negative test result. A negative test result? I am not wheat intolerant. Has it come up already? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, there we go. No more excuses, Jim. We'll have to go and drink 10 pints tonight, eat a pizza, get some bread in. I'm going to enjoy every moment of it. (laughs) I should hope so. So on that note, I think it's time to welcome our fantastic guests to the studio. And that is none other than Pete Trainer and Zilia Litvin, who are both going to talk about all the amazing stuff they're doing with AI and mental health. Jim, any thoughts? Let's get them in. Let's get them in. So um, it's time to welcome our guest to the studio, Rob, who is joining us this month. This month, we have two fantastic guests. The first is the one I knew before today's recording, which is none other than Pete Trainer. Pete, well, Pete, how would you describe yourself to our listeners? How would I describe myself? Uh, like, truthfully or professionally? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe truthfully. a bit of both. <laughs> truthfully, uh, the geezer that does AI and stuff. Um, no, I'm a designer and an author who's kind of forest gumping his way through artificial intelligence and uh, various other techno goodies. And when you say geezer, what, what particular things give you uh, some geezer creds? Uh, well... I try not to talk bollocks about technology. Excuse me, my French is, is out already. So we're, uh, as a company, we're trying to be very, very honest with our clients and very, very honest with the people that use anything that we create and deal with the really tough issues in a very human way. And I think that kind of qualifies me as a geezer. Um, our second guest on today's episode, you kind of invited to us. So maybe you should do that introduction. Oh, so uh, so recently we had the absolute joy of of talking at the Cognition X Artificial Intelligence Conference, which was good. Um, I hear it was amazing. It was it was, amazing. A, it was a really really amazing conference. I think it was the first big honest conversation in the UK about artificial intelligence and what it is and what it isn't. And we actually hit on some really good issues on that one. You know, we were on. I helped organise the mental health panel, so AI and mental health, which is kind of a sweet spot for me and Zilia. And in the process of creating and creating that lineup, that's how we met. And so I was in awe of everybody that came and spoke on my panel and hence us being here as a duo today. So here, here we are. And uh, Zilia, um, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. Hi. So my name is Zilia Litvin. I'm a psychologist and CEO and founder of PsychApps, which is a digital mental health gaming company. 
So that's um, a few things together, right? Yes, I know it's it's very long as well. People are like, "What?" What we're doing it started out as part of my PhD thesis, and I developed an evidence-based application to treat depression. So when you use this app, it significantly lowers depression levels. But the problem was we couldn't keep people to stick to the app because it was kind of boring. It was it helped, but it was boring. So we are now using artificial intelligence, chatbots, and notifications to design a game to make it like intrinsically motivating to do therapy. So to try and learn from the patients, I guess you call them, and and kind of gamify it and, and make exactly. it a bit more engaging. And, exactly, it's right. all about gamification and you know, uh, keeping making it interesting and switching it up. You know. So tell me how you got into psychology. Oh, I wanted to study psychology since I was 12. I used to travel a lot. Um, I'm half American, half German. I grew up in the States and we moved to Luxembourg. Then we moved to Germany. And I was always confused about what was going around me, the different cultures, different languages and everything. And my sister got a body language book when I was 12 and I opened it up and it was like a magical, like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> like <laughs> wow, this is, this is amazing that there's actually a science behind how people act and think and the emotions. So that was... Ever since I wanted to study it. And how did that first turn tech? I did my master's pretty normally. And then I thought I want to do my PhD because I love research and I love the field and everything. But I wanted to do something a little bit of outside the box. Usually in Germany. So I did my, my master's in Germany. You go to your professor and you say you want to do your PhD. And they have a pack of different PhD projects. And they give you one and you do it and you come back. And I thought, no, I want to do something modern. I want to change it up a little bit because psychology is a very conservative field and it's important because there's a lot of responsibility. But at the same time, I think we need to step it up and go a bit more with the times and use technology. And I like to say that smartphones are the ultimate comfort zone. Like you always have it with you. It's next to you in your bed, even though it shouldn't be as <laughs> studies show. You have it with you at the loo. Like it's your whole life is around it, and that's where therapy should be. Um, and uh, that's a couple of other things then. Pete, you've got a book. I have, yeah. I published a book last year called Hippo, the human-focused digital book. Hippo is um, a reference to the hippocampus. And it's a, a book that really started because of those odd psychological effects to do with technology. Like I'd started seeing people behaving quite bizarrely. And then realised that I'd just spent the last 20 years designing the things that make people behave bizarrely. So <laughs> I had a bit of a crisis. Uh, and the book is very... Um, very much a, a philosophical take on design and technology it takes a step backwards we have a very kind of pure desire with nexus ai, AI my company and, and and me personally as a designer that technology should just go away and just give us all the smart stuff but none of the screens and that's really what the book is about the book is about kind of analyzing what makes us people and making some suggestions on how we could be designing things in a much more thoughtful way to amplify the best parts of humanity rather than erode them it's interesting. We were having a long um, discussion a couple a couple of episodes ago about um, uh, the responsibility of people who make mm. things, yeah. um, particularly social networks. Really yeah. about uh, using what they know about psychology in the brain mm -hmm. for good rather mm. than bad. So, should they be nudging us to just consume more of a product, or should they actually have some consideration for us? I was just reading an article today about I think the ex head of Apple Design saying that he was a bit worried if he has created a monster with his designs because now he has kids and he sees what it's yeah. doing to his kids. Right. And the big changes that we have right now were made by 
white men in their 20s to 30s that were without children and just wanted to make it as sticky and addictive as possible. And now they're looking and thinking, uh-oh, what have we done? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the stuff we were covering. And it's like all that stuff's been driven ultimately by VC value, time on site, time yes. in app, and yes. not by the things that make us human and yeah. and further society and the interaction yeah. we have with each other, with our children. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's... Uh, Certainly an interesting topic, and maybe that brings us on to the whole ethical side of it. I don't know. It's it's well, I, there's a lot of debate about that right now. What, what do you I think? I mean, just to, just to quickly add on to the the last question, though. You know, the other thing that we covered in the book, which we as society, especially now, seem to kind of skip over in favour of more dystopian conversations, is actually this text done an awful lot of good. Yeah. So I saw a lot of positives in my children, as well as negatives. There were clearly negatives with their behaviour, but you know, they were learning words quicker they were you know some of their finer motor skills were coming along much quicker because they're using their fingers to do all sorts of interesting things on screens you know they were consuming content in a way that just paper just does not engage and so there are a lot of positives with this stuff as well and i think we should take a very balanced view on all of these topics there was a that reminds me of the conversation we had about um the renaissance um, yeah, yeah, well, that, that, that was um, that. Funnily enough, that was a, a conference that Pete spoke at, and it was our friend Guy who gave that mm-hmm. fantastic talk yeah. about how maybe actually the best is yet to come, and a really kind of upbeat take on it. And I, mm-hmm. I, I like that as much as there's been this this narrative around the dystopia and, and all that stuff, mm-hmm. it does feel like there's a kind of change of tide now and that maybe people are starting to focus more on the positive angles around it. And I don't know, maybe that's because it's becoming more accepted and a bit more normal, or maybe, you know, enough smart people like Guy have been mm-hmm. kind of pushing that message forward. And and I don't know, I mean, for me, this sort of brings me to when I first met Pete. And I first met Pete when he was talking about a project which transforms lives and, and ultimately is already deploying this stuff for good. And so, mm-hmm. uh, Pete, maybe you could tell us a bit about Sue. Yeah, so I've been working sort of in mental health for a good 10 years in terms of, you know, working with charities, trying to work out how we could use technology. But last year was really a big one for me because we started working with couple of really amazing social enterprises in the Midlands, Ford for Life and Common Unity. Um, they introduced me to a, a really wonderful man called Johnny Benjamin, who's a sort of active and very vocal male mental health and male suicide campaigner. Just astonishing people. And we formulated this group, Man Made, and it was really to try and look at all of our various disciplines and see where we could try to erode the male suicide numbers, um, you know, coming at it at various different angles. And so Technology kind of came to me, obviously because of the business and my background. And we were very adamant that we could reduce the rate of male suicide in the UK by just one. Like we would very much like that number to be bigger. But what we could, what, what could we do about it? And you know, suicide at the moment is killing three times as many men as women in the UK. It's a really, really big issue. And so we looked at the way technology could try and uh, help in this particular situation, and we created an algorithm called Sue. It's a very basic stochastic model to analyse conversations and try and work out some of the tone and the sentiment in conversations um, to um, give men something that they could volunteer to have a conversation with in a chat-based environment or a voice-based environment when they don't want to speak to another human being, um, which was a big insight. You know, men will talk, but they're just not comfortable sometimes speaking to a person. And so for the last year, we've really been refining the AI and Sue trying to work out the best way of deploying this and, and how good this could be. And I'm I'm really quite humbled by it all, actually. It's working. It's got a very small user base at the moment, a small base of human beings that are having conversations, but the data that's coming back is very positive. 
we're learning a huge amount about the male psyche. We're seeing men having conversations with us about things that they have not spoke to their therapist about, um, very personal things. And then we're able to start tailoring using machine learning uh, some of the conversations and the recommendations and the distractions that Sue is, is starting to give. It's pretty, it's been, it's been pretty, uh, uh, yeah, pretty astonishing, actually. I've learned a huge amount about myself. I, um, re- re- I read a report, actually, it's quite some time ago, to, that talks about sort of male suicide and, and, and men's ability to sort of keep friendship networks past a certain age mm-hmm. being a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, d- I don't know if that's, is that the sort of thing that, that, that has come up as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of that. Um, you know, men are, not all men, and I think this is really important as well, we don't just kind of lump all men into a category of behaviour, like people are more complicated than that. Um, but, you know, there are a number of variables, you know, guys... Um, especially middle-aged guys are sandwiched between some very difficult generations for men. So they're sandwiched between like a post-war generation of parents, dads who probably had PTSD that was never diagnosed um, and were very unpleasant at home into a generation of more kind of liberal ideals, which again is very complicated for men of a certain generation to handle. It was the same generation of, of men who then, you know, lost a lot of jobs in the 80s um a lot of dads that you know went through divorces and lost their children like there's a whole hotbed of reasons um and then all the way down to the second generation after that you know people my age who had to deal with their dads dealing with that stuff and then more complicated things and technology taking their jobs and you know rate of unemployment and it's just it's a very very complex thing men unfortunately just don't handle so many different complicated variations and so we have a very simple message with all of this which is you know help surviving change in an ever-changing world and i think men are just some of the men that we're, we're having conversations with dealing uh, with this particular issue on just aren't coping with the rate of change in an ever-changing world particularly well yeah it's fascinating and I, I think this is kind of to the stuff we were talking about in the news earlier earlier on about how you know with the census stuff about how when people are being asked by a human they're less likely to give an honest answer. And this was one of the things that Pete and I yeah. discussed off air is, was about how actually, you know, the, the people participating in using Sue, they don't want to talk to a human. It's not faking human interaction that yeah. they want. They just want to be supported. And actually doing so in, a, in knowing they're talking to a machine, as the case may be, is actually a positive thing in this context because it makes it much easier for them to open up and to be open. And I think that's that's fascinating that, you know, everyone talks about AI and chatbots and all this stuff as if it's trying to simulate human communication. But actually, in many cases, there's a pretty compelling reason why it shouldn't attempt to do that. We've done a, we did a whole load of psychology work behind like the language that Sue communicates with. So, you know, it is, it's an it, it's not an I, you know, it's a we, it's not a, it's not an I. It's not a male, it's not a female. Sue is actually SU, it's an acronym for, you know, a shortening of the term suicide, actually. It's not a lady's name at all. So it's completely androgynous. It's unashamedly machine-driven, and it kind of works because of that. Yeah, Um, I can definitely say we've done some research in a completely different field that showed exactly that, particularly with mm -hmm. some young people. They were very pleased to know they were talking to a machine. Yeah. And so I think that, that that rings true. Zilia, just sort of like bringing you into this, tell tell us about the types of apps you're creating and what motivated you to make them. Well, at the moment, because you have to start small, this is my first startup, we have, we're starting with one app, and it's a psychological concept learning game. Because of the app that I just told you about, the evidence-based one, um, it was really hard to retain clients. 
So we're thinking we need to do a bit of a detour before we start offering proper treatment that's evidence-based and kind of understand how to um, make it pleasurable to do treatment. So what we're doing now is we're teaching psychological concepts that are relevant for people that are both ill and well mentally and um, putting it into kind of like a learning atmosphere but in a fun way. I don't know if you guys know Duolingo. Yeah. It's a very successful language learning app, has a 110 active users as of now, and I think six or seven different languages from French, Swahili, German, all these kind of things, and people are using it and they're sticking to it because they're, they're machine learning. Taylor makes the learning process towards the person. After you use it a few times, it understands what kind of games or, or learning process they have to offer, not to make it too hard so that you get frustrated and stop, not to make it too easy so that you get bored and stop. And, you know, there are algorithms that can tell before you're going to stop playing the game and then they change it somehow. So you go, oh, oh, there's something wow. new. And so you stick to it. So sort of tailoring the learning experience to the individual. Exactly. Okay. And that, that's what we want to do for psychological concepts like generalization, or catastrophizing or emotional bids. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've seen some adverts, actually. So interestingly, there's like two worlds colliding. I've seen like <clears throat> digital marketing trying to make me do what I want, advertising <laughs> apps and programs that are essentially cognitive sort of therapy, behavioral sort of therapy yeah. apps. Uh, have you have you sort of looked at any of those? Do you, are, are there... Are they are they good? Are some of them actually using like not good science? You know, are there risks out there? Well, the market is um, huge. There are like my first app was depression. So I looked at all of the depression apps on the market and you can have anything from saying like depending on the moon cycle, you can treat depression um, and drinking water or, have, you know, getting crystals or something, which is absolutely crazy homeopathy <laughs> water in water <laughs> exactly and then you have um some really good ones that are evidence-based and um then you have the ones in between like for example i think headspace is still a good application mm -hmm. and you have um andy andy's a very soothing dude it's the soft <laughs> voice of andy <laughs> yes exactly and you have um oh lots of them oh, now i can't come up with any one of them um, there are like 20 apps that we really looked into and they're, and they're pr pretty good. But the problem is the brain goes for three things, social interaction, novelty, and sex. So if you can't offer at least one of these three, it's going to be really hard to retain customers. And if you're trying to help their lives, then you're not going to be able to do that if you don't tap into one of those three. I guess we should get back to basics. <laughs> We've sort of been dancing around the, the area of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So you just talked extensively about an app that learns, and we kind of alluded mm -hmm. to it. Um, but let's start at the beginning. What is AI? Oh, I'd better take that one, haven't I? <laughs> AI is being used kind of interchangeably with a couple of other technical disciplines, and I think it's really important that people start to use it sensibly. So AI is really a way of describing machinery, machines technology that can make decisions on its own based on a data set or based on a question that is asked so it's a you know stochastic modeling it's if this happens what would the impact be automatically giving the answer back to you most ai is pretty boring you know when you check your phone to find out how far away your pizza is on the delivery app that's ai that's telling you the distance that's being calculated and the time of travel and all that kind of good stuff. You know, Google is continuously refining its search results based on, you know, data in an AI is making the inference on what should be at the top of the list and all that kind of good stuff. So we're actually kind of swimming in AI. 
next level down, you've got machine learning. Machine learning is the really gritty stuff. Machine learning is really machines that are starting to take in vast amounts of quantified data, all the stuff that we're generating on our phones, all the stuff that we're generating online, all the stuff that we're generating in our houses, all of the information that's ones and zeros that's being created by everybody every single second on the, you know, of their lives at the moment, and then learning on a vast scale from all that information that's being generated. Machine learning's only really had, for my money anyway, a good shot uh, at doing what it does best in the last kind of 10 years because the iPhone was invented 10 years ago. That really changed the market in terms of smartphoneage. There's that exhaustive data now, right? That, massive, you know, yeah, really massive. We talked today about how everyone has a phone with them at all times, and I think that, as yeah. a, you know, in terms of a data capture device. I was reading somewhere recently, and I don't know if it's one of those data legends, I hope it's not, that 90% of the world's data has been generated in the last two years. <laughs> and that's largely why suddenly we've hit this wonderful kind of frontier that machines are going to start using you know, a lot more data than it's ever been than they've ever been exposed to to start getting smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter. I think when big data was a new term, there was loads of yeah. forecasts like that. So it could even be that some forecasts were correct. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, the other thing that really changed things again, it's no no secret, no surprise, is two thousand and eight when an awful lot of algorithmic traders lost their jobs in the city, and so data scientists were usually people that sat in labs. Suddenly there was a load of people that didn't consider themselves to be data scientists, but it were in fact data scientists that left banks and financial institutes, you know, destitute that needed to find new work. And so an awful lot of those algorithmic traders started looking at large data sets, trying to work out what they could do and creating different types of artificial intelligence companies. So it's sort of the combination of the, the smartphone boom and lots of really smart data designers uh, leaving financial institutions really started the ball rolling. For me, anyway, that was That's probably the big one. And and so let, what do we think the impact of this is going to be on our lives over the next 10 years? I'm so positive about all of this stuff, and I have to be, because I do think it's just the best time. The, the big impact is going to be we are able to treat everybody as an individual. We're, like, we're, we're suddenly going to be able to use technology to do things that we only dreamed of to help people that are at their most vulnerable for mental health. We're going to be able to, you know, give people access to learning information in a quicker, more personalised, more sort of instantaneous fashion. It's going to be amazing. The next couple of years are going to be absolutely astonishing. I read a report that said 65% of the jobs that primary school children will do don't exist yet. Yeah, and for you know, for every apparently for every job that for every role that is lost because of automation, another eleven are going to be created to you know support that automation or train that automation, or we're going to get time back to do all of that stuff that we want to be doing that you know is non-linear in nature because machines are only really all that good at doing linear stuff anyway. Well, that's the sort of renaissance part of this, isn't it? Yeah. That if we if if the world is more sustainable and running itself, we can all have a great time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I'm very positive direction um, diagnostics, both medical and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, there have been huge leaps, and I could imagine artificial intelligence to be a very good help and tool for therapists. Um, I don't see much in the actual therapy or intervention happening in the next ten years, but I can imagine that, and because people are still people and they don't remember as well as machines, and they can't interpret as much data as a machine can that we probably won't be doing many diagnostics by ourselves yeah. anymore 
And that would be a good thing. And, you know, the, the, the way that machine learning works or artificial intelligence, I think it complements human thought processing. So it could it could boost up uh, us up to another level of, you know, interaction and creation. Yeah. So, so, so that, that's like some of the deep stuff. <laughs> but would you, given the option, wear a chip or something that augments your brain to access that data? I would chicken out right now and say no. <laughs> uh, would I? Well, uh, it depends. What? N- n- Do you no, want to be a cyborg? That's really the question. Well, but this is the thing, we already are cyborgs, and I think that's the point. It's like, we're just know, holding it in our hands. We just put it and it's in our pockets and it's yeah. in our hands, and you know, we're already looking at um, hearables, so we're already playing around with technology that sure, basically yeah. sits in your ear. That you can so if it was a baseball with. cap, right? It uh, could take off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah like, maybe something like that. <laughs> It, it, the problem is if you have a chip in your head, it could also be hacked. So the thought that someone else could hack into my brain or make my brain do things that I wouldn't want it to do yeah. is the only reason that I wouldn't. If it was 100% sure that it just enhances and enables, then mm. sure, why not? But it brings extra vulnerability into your life. And of course, earlier we were talking about um, the dragonflies. Yeah, indeed. Ooh, yeah. The dragonflies are pretty terrifying. Um so these are dragonflies that we can, real dragonflies that yeah. we can control. <gasps> like remote control dragonflies? Yeah. yeah. They're being genetically um, like reared to oh, wow. be able like mini drones. I had a slight problem with the dragonfly thing in that <laughs> dragonflies only live for a couple of weeks. That's yeah. an awful lot of scientific effort for something that's going to drop out of the sky after like maybe, two weeks. Maybe we fix that too. Like just yeah. make well, that's next on the list. Dragonflies yeah. that live forever. Um, yeah, I, I figured when I read that news story that there was probably some very overzealous scientists and technicians looking for excuses to muck around with genetics and technology <laughs> right. and then going, oh, we could quick, we could send those into war zones where drones can't reach. Like they yeah. sort of retrofit an excuse but on that one. It, it sort of smacked a little bit of that, let's do it because we can and not stop to yeah, think yeah, if we yeah, should, yeah. right? Yeah. We um, had a, so, so my... My philosophy uh, for the business, for my work, for me personally, is transhumanism. So the basic transhumanism philosophy is that nobody gets left behind and that technology should enhance humanity and drive us forward. Genetically modifying and technically enhancing dragonflies does not fit into my transhumanist <laughs> ideals because I just cannot see how it benefits humanity. I, 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 there's part of me that hopes at some point that that innovation like massively helps society. I'm not sure how you can, a genetically modified dragonfly helps humanity. But there you go. It starts with the dragonflies, then you go to mice, then you go to rats, then That's you go true. to chimps, and then you go to people. Yeah. And, you know, I have to kind of self-govern myself because when I say I would never do that, I know my mom... It took her, like, last year she got her first smartphone. She's like, I'd never do a smartphone. So, you know, it's just this fear of the unknown and the yeah, change. Sure. Yeah, We're going to see you with a chip yeah, hanging off your head. the biggest chip <laughs> that you can get. Like. Gold-plated. Yeah. My, my dad's never had a mobile phone, like, ever. Yeah. But I gave him an Amazon Alexa at Christmas, and yeah. he's suddenly online. <laughs> um, I love that sort of when people skip technologies. Yeah. That's so awesome. Maybe there's going to be a generation of people that just go straight to the chip in the head. Yeah. Yeah. Like, don't even right. think about the phone. Talking about the hacking cyborg stuff, question that actually, that's something that's come up previously because a lots of people already have um, pacemakers yep. mm-hmm. and um, they had no security <clears throat> on them at all. And yeah. you could log on to those oh, with wow. no password. Um, yeah. Because um, one of our previous guests actually discovered that his father's pacemaker was Wi Fi accessible with no password. Are you kidding me? And so. It was, yeah, it was Adam Graham was the person. Yeah. We, did we talk about it on the we show? We did. Or was it, I, think, I think we talked about it on air. And um, yeah, he, you know, we joked about, you know, one Christmas sat around 
<laughs> a few too many gins. <laughs> Packing his heart. Where that could end up. But it's a serious thing, it's, you know. It's, and, and look, if there's one thing we all know about technology, or at least I do as the techie in the room, it will always go wrong. Yeah. It yeah. will always be compromised. There is yeah. no such thing as infallible yeah. technology. Yeah. So as soon as we start introducing tech to our bodies, yeah. some people yeah. are going to get hacked. Like, yeah. it's yeah. just a fact. Or kidnapping, extortion, all that kind of stuff. Imagine that. Kidnapping yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be good, wouldn't it? But just, like, technically. Yeah. Just like, I'm walking out of my door. I'd rather be not doing this. Oh, God, I'm getting in the van. You know, there's no duress needed. It's just... But we do, I mean, we'd always joked in our house, I'm married to a human rights lawyer, so privacy is fairly high on our mm-hmm. conversational radar all the time. But, you know, when the kids were born, I used to joke that we, if, if we could get our dogs chipped... So that we get know the where they are, yeah. we should just get the kids chipped, and like that was a no-no in our house. Yeah. But there's something in there, yeah. uh, in terms of you know keeping our children safe and all that kind of yeah. things. But yeah, they are hackable. But I think to your point, what everybody does is they stuff a smartphone in their kid's pocket, or some people do, right? <clears throat> and they're all you know, be it a basic one with Find My Friends enabled, but that's where it's got to. And so I'd never really thought about it that way that we kind of are already cyborgs, albeit in the palm of our hands. But actually. Yeah look up and down a train, people are pretty attached to their phones. And, mm-hmm. You know, the oh, way yeah, you described it was, mm-hmm. was, was great. There's my favourite picture of uh, St Peter's Square for the 2004 Pope's inauguration and then the 2013. Yes. It's a great contrast, uh, isn't It's it? an amazing, amazing photo. You can just Google it, it's online. There are like no smartphones out at the 2004 inauguration in St Peter's Square. Yeah. The two, 2013, it's a sea of little lit up screens. Yeah. It's just astonishing. Yeah. The other one was the American political <clears throat> rally. Did you see that one side by side? So one, it was Hillary Clinton from last year. One had loads of people at it. One didn't. <laughs> no? <laughs> That's actually a funnier story. So maybe we'll just go with that one. But um, there's one, the previous one, I guess it would have been Obama in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the people are using phones, but they're all taking photos of Obama. Yeah, and then skip yeah. forward to Hillary's campaign, yeah. and they're all taking selfies. Yeah, with so they're all facing the other way, and it's yeah. this incredible shift. And yeah. I think when you put the two side by side like that, it shows you quite clearly how quickly these things change. What have yeah. we done? Yeah, <laughs> what have we done? It's no wonder we have to exist to save people from like mental health concerns. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, well, on that note, do you guys think that technology and the internet has made us more anxious? Do you think that's Definitely. kind of creating the problem as well? Definitely. There are quite a few studies, especially with young girls and body dysmorphia, that 20 minutes on Instagram is enough to push up their depression and anxiety rates by a substantial amount, a significant amount. And there's a lot of FOMO. And there's a lot of um, bullying and there's this idea of being perfect and showing perfect life. And then even though they're doing it themselves and they know that their life is not perfect, Mm -hmm. they still perceive the other people to be real. And then, you know, if you compare, then there's always going to be a a gap. So I think social media is a double-sided sword and you really have to have conversations with your kids about it. I think until the brain is developed at a certain age which I would drastically say 18, is that you should limit their usage by, let's say, half an hour to an hour a day. Kids are going to hate me. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you can tell that for off up to four hours a day on social media and using media, after that, each half hour, their uh, grades drop by a point. So, you know, it just shows that... It has a measurable impact. It has a measurable impact. And you feel that there's a substantial difference or there is a substantial difference between... Because some of that anxiety would have been caused previously yeah. by non-social media yeah. things like 
I don't know, Smash Hits magazine or something. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a noticeable increase yeah. based on the, the things that caused that anxiety Volume before. As well, yeah. isn't Volume, it? exactly. One magazine, one kid's magazine, you know, you can read it in what, if you're a slow reader, an hour, and then you've seen it. With social media, you can go on all day watching pictures and videos that you have not seen. Yeah, being bombarded by yeah. new content, right? Yeah. It's more and more. What it, what it makes me think about recently, because one of the things that's come up a lot recently is um, micro-influencer marketing, yeah. which is designed around the concept that these are people that are kind of cool who don't have loads of followers, so they're not megastars. Mm -hmm. So they're sort of accessible, yeah. which kind of plays into being worse for that reason, doesn't it? Because they're sort of like the really good-looking person with an amazing life but who could live around the corner. Yeah. And so it's sort of accessible but sort of not. I just yeah. find the whole the whole thing so cynical. I mean, it's just... It, it's getting to the point of being, like, a bit creepy. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to have my... I'm going to have the conversation about social media and data with Charlie and Phoebe before the birds and the bees. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way mm -hmm. that the world's suddenly <laughs> yeah. turned. And, and say to them, you know, what you do is going to be who you are, that vapour trail of digital is not going to disappear. It's always mm -hmm. going to be there. And it's kind of, that's the way that the world's turned. There's an interesting question there about, because <clears throat> the birds and the bees part of that, I guess there's been a lot of debate, but schools have kind of had years of practice of introducing that topic. Are they massively ill-equipped to deal with this sort of digital yeah. um, mental health anxiety risk that's associated with um, social media? From my experience, yes. We've been going around some schools, talking to classes and children, you know, from kind of six all the way through to 16 about some of these things and the teachers are generally not I mean they must think that some children go home and knit <laughs> like, like no they go home and play on Minecraft like that's what they do um, yeah. and I'm not watch bashing unboxing videos on exactly. YouTube like, I'm not yeah. bashing teachers they're very very busy people and yeah. they're, they're paid to do an analog job like that's yeah. what they do but I'm sure they don't realize just quite what's going on in their children's lives it must be funny relating it as a parent to when you're a child, because I mean, I, there was a period in my life when I spent an awful lot of time on a computer, but it wasn't connected to anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, yeah. it was just me. Yeah. <laughs> that was bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> That's had a pretty bad effect on me. <laughs> well, we've, uh, well, but I mean, we, I mean, that computer, even when it was unconnected, still had a sort of physiological effect on yeah. you playing games and stuff like that. I mean, we yeah. did a study a couple of years ago. Um, it was actually related to Tinder, but the same thing applies, you know, if you're playing an adventure game if you're in adventure mode that could be tinder that could be you know whatever the kids are playing on xbox these days um for about sort of two three minutes you're running on adrenaline because you're in the moment and you're getting that rush something's pinged and you're there then you're kind of floating through testosterone for a little while but that only lasts in your body for you know 10 12 minutes max for guys and less for for ladies but it's still there you know post 20 minutes you're into cortisol which is sort of stress and depression hormone territory. Mm. Um, your body is slowly digesting itself. That's basically what cortisol does. And so anybody that's sitting, riding some of these emotions through, be it online, offline, amplified online, because you've got the influence of other people and all mm -hmm. of that kind of like surprise. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, it's a really quite astonishing thing that we've done with technology for the last 30 years, not just the last 10. A chemical cocktail. Yes, yeah. I could use a real cocktail at this point. But <laughs> you can say, yeah, I was just saying um, that there's a UCLA professor that calls um, social media and the digital world digital cocaine, and it has a very similar effect mm. to the reward system of the brain. So, and it is, it can be addictive. So, if people have prevalence, and you know, 
then they can get addicted to social media to, yeah. to yeah. all the digital stuff. In the book, um, we actually interviewed a, a lady. She was amazing. Um, she was 17 when we spoke to her who had IAD, Internet Addiction Disorder. Um, and it was it was really heartbreaking because you think... Yeah, it's a serious problem, right? Yeah. A very serious problem. Like, you know, um, combinations of uh, just general social anxiety, disconnection, like had some really horrific effects. And that's part of the reason since the but since we did the book and I met people like this, like I'm refusing to use the word user, like with any of our clients or with any of you know people that I speak to. I just I despise the word because it's kind of becoming actually quite a, a social norm. Like people are are using the Internet sometimes in a way that you would use a drug or you would use, you know, alcohol and so I think it just comes back to this idea. We have to remember that everybody that we're designing this stuff for is a human being um, and they're very vulnerable sometimes. It's weird when you're aware of this. So I find, particularly since some of the conversations we've had making this podcast, mm. that um, I now think about my state of mind when mm -hmm. I pick up my phone because I'm like, I think I've just picked up my phone because I want the hit it's going to yeah, give me. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm like, and then I'm like, how many notifications have I got? And I'm like, yeah. I can't, and, and you sort of like, so you're doing it knowingly is even yeah. weirder. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's a good experiment for, for everybody listening, right? Somewhere on your phone, an uh, iPhone, Android, whatever it is, is there's going to be an accessibility menu, right, in settings. In that accessibility menu will be the option to put your phone into black and white. Uh, put your phone into black and white for a weekend and see how that affects your behaviour. You'll find your behaviour, you get all of the pulling it out looking at it, checking your emails, checking your notifications and stuff, but you don't get any of the little red alerts. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of calms you down slightly because they're not using that big red push notification, the red bubble, to drive yeah. you click, into those various trail, apps. Yeah. Like you feel, you put your phone in black and white and you suddenly have a bit more control for some bizarre reason. And there's a lot of colour psychology that goes into how these things are designed and, you know, red is danger and urgency. And put it into black and white and see what happens. 48 hours and you'll see a an interesting effect on your behaviour. Should we do that before the next episode, Rob? I think we should. <laughs> I think we should. And I, I feel that I should I should tell everybody that today I saw Jim doing exactly what he just described. Mm -hmm. Jim recently posted a photo of himself doing what, what only an agency CEO could be doing, which is wearing a Mexican wrestling mask with some shiny gold shoes while standing on a swagway. That's right. That uh, <laughs> at one of his company parties. So, uh, you know, and, and was checking in to see how many likes it had received only, only this afternoon. Uh, and Jim really isn't that sort of guy either. I so. barely use Facebook. So I was like, after sort of two years of not having uploaded a photograph, yeah, how many yeah, yeah. people will really care that I've uploaded a photograph? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see him by myself. Um, I post for my company, but I don't post privately anymore. And I spent the weekend with a girlfriend who's an influencer, has a couple of hundred thousand... And she was posting all the time. It was like a bug. So I posted a picture of myself going to an event. And my boyfriend was like, why did you do that? It was like I was on the same like wave trying to get it fixed. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it affected me. And this is what yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Just by proximity. <laughs> the theory of planned behavior, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Amazing conversation. Rob, have you got anything else that you want to ask? Well, there's one thing. Pete, it says on your LinkedIn that you cite North African food as your favorite food. Uh, which is an unusual choice. So I, I, I thought we couldn't, couldn't let this interview slip past without asking you about your, your penchant for North African food. Genuinely the most random thing anybody <laughs> has ever asked me uh, in an interview situation. Uh, Moroccan food. I love Moroccan food and I love Egyptian Tangier? food. Yeah, anything that's uh, sort of neck of Africa up. Um, but yeah, like I like North African food. 
It's, I'm not I, sure where that's going. I mean, <laughs> you could ask me on a date I, now. So I have um, an AI angle to this. Oh, no, there isn't. If you're just yeah. talking about cuisine. You know, I looked at uh, an infographic you'd made about yourself or, or you met that is about you. This isn't creepy at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, and did you put a pin in the, your map of celebrity homes <laughs> for where I live as well? Yep, I've got that. Um, and, um, and, and, and actually, the, the, I thought the, the cuisine angle was, was, was strong. And so, yeah, I'm pleased you asked that, Rob. Mm-hmm. And there are other questions from that infographic available, but that's the one that I think was best chosen Um, so let's like wrap up by sort of saying what's the piece of technology that you can't live without Uh, well my phone obviously but I think we're going to see in the next couple years that doing an awful lot more good than harm I hope because of people like me and Zillia Um, letting it be your codified counsellor letting it be your support letting it warn you when you're spending too much time on it and just being a little bit more human Um, but yeah my phone I would say by now I'm going bigger. I'm going back to my laptop, actually. And I put my phone, I read another article that if it's your phone is next to you, the probability that you're able to concentrate goes down significantly. So I put it in another room and I just work on my computer with my noise cancelling uh, headphones and I like it nice and big. Cool. Um, and uh, what, what, the other question I want to ask you is, um, what's your what's your biggest hope for your company? I really hope that we can find a way to make therapy fun. That is my goal. Amazing. And Pete, you, you're you going to write another book. I am. Word well, on the street. Yeah, word on the infographic. Well, yeah, and, and I feel like we, we haven't actually named the book yet. So uh, Hippo, the human-focused digital book, That's which right. was number one on Amazon for some time, I hasten to add, and in, it's in its great. category. And it is great. It, it genuinely keeps, is great. Well, I mean, it's the slightly cathartic ramblings of a dyslexic nutter AI designer. British so, humbleness. Uh, it's Yeah, like, I'm not a great author, but like it came from a very genuine place. Um, yeah, the next book's going to be much more focused on AI, and we're going to start looking at um, the real kind of opportunities and also kind of juxtapositions that come from AI. So, you know, we're, we've met a, a billionaire oligarch who's codifying his mind because he wants to control his estate once he's died, and I've also <laughs> met um, a young man whose life expectancy is very short because of a condition called EB that wants to codify his memories so that his newborn nephew can have a conversation with him once he's died, Aww. you know, very recently. And they're both trying to do exactly the same thing from very different positions. And so it's going to take a, a much more philosophical look at AI as a technology and the kind of the ups, the downs, the goods and the bads and those effects that, that it has on people. But you have to find time to write it now. Well, absolutely. You heard it here first, listener. Check out the next book. Indeed. I I mean, my final question would be, if there was one thing our listeners could do to help support the mission that you guys are on, what would it be? That might be a tough question to answer. Is there one thing? Is there is there support they could offer? Are there more, do you need more people to participate in being guinea pigs for the stuff you're building? Yes, guinea pigs. I need lots of guinea pigs. The more, the better. So if they could go to our site and sign up so that we can have them test our products, that would be amazing. And I've got, uh, I mean, mine's, kind of uh, a slightly different one actually it's non-technically related i think you know we as a society are just breaking through technology is helping by the way we're starting to talk about mental health male female children adult pensioners whatever in a way that we've never done before like destigmatizing these things and i think just keep talking about it and even podcasts like this and shows like this and and you guys kind of inviting us on to have this conversation is great like talking about it is healthy um, whether that's through technology or just with each other, it's all good. 
So, so keep the debate going. Keep the debate going. Keep Tell the people about this going. podcast is, is really the message I'm getting from that. Yeah. Um, the more yeah. people that listen, the better. Absolutely. <laughs> for, the, for the good of humanity. <laughs> well, you know, someone's got to do it, Rob. Yeah. Well, on the sword. And uh, I think that's a fantastic place to end. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us You're for welcome. episode five of Alexa Stop. It's been a, a privilege. Um, time to hit the pub, I think. Yeah, thank really you very much. Thank, thank you, you so much. For, this was really good. I could do another hour. <laughs> A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowles. We saw Lauren Sweber earlier. Lawrence, is it what yeah. they're yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, 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 and he's like, you're known for your, your waistcoats. And I didn't even get to fit in a waistcoat question. Well, so. um, I didn't know I was known for them. Well, they're like man girdles. They just keep my, <laughs> <Man-girdles>? <laughs> just keep my tummy in. I think Jim all. said, it's a hot day. And Lawrence said, no, no, he'll definitely be wearing a waistcoat. I, I have, so a Personal brand, mate. You've got to do it. There's a story behind the waistcoat. So when my, uh, when my grand died a couple of years ago, I didn't know my grandfather, but the only thing I inherited was... Uh, in his waistcoat lots of waistcoats because I was the only <laughs> member of the family who happened to be pretty much exactly the same size as my grandfather and so there were all these cool waistcoats and I was like they're pretty cool, cool. Story. Um, oh no I wish I'd asked <laughs> but yeah. we are still recording to be fair so. <laughs> <laughs> I think you so, just yeah. did I, think so yeah. I, do have, I do own a lot of waistcoats it's true yeah.